You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Bloomberg reports that a Chinese hardware hack has infested sensitive U.S. supply chains. Dutch authorities expelled GRU officers for attempting to hack the international body investigating the nerve agent attack in Salisbury. Australia, the U.K., and Canada all finger the GRU as responsible for high-profile cyber attacks. And the U.S. indicts seven GRU officers for a range of hacking-related crimes. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 4th, 2018. Chinese cyber operations against the U.S. are scheduled to come front and center when U.S. Vice President Michael Pence delivers a speech laying out the American case against China for influence operations directed at the coming midterm elections. But a report this morning by Bloomberg offers some startling allegations. The news organization's investigation alleges that China succeeded in compromising U.S. computer hardware supply chains with maliciously crafted chips. The chips, Bloomberg says, were found in motherboards of servers intended to handle, among other things, U.S. government files, some regarded as sensitive. They turned up in equipment made for Amazon, which apparently alerted U.S. authorities of suspicions about the hardware, and for Apple. Video encoding shop Elemental Technologies, since 2015 an Amazon subsidiary now known as Amazon Prime Video, engaged Supermicro to assemble its servers. Supermicro used several Chinese subcontractors in the process, which is where the compromise is thought to have occurred. Bloomberg says Amazon noticed something fishy, very small chips on the motherboards, not part of the design, after it acquired Elemental and undertook a routine security review of the equipment that Elemental engaged California-based Supermicro to build for it. Their tip to the government opened an investigation, Bloomberg calls it top secret, that remains open three years later. Among the results Bloomberg reports is a finding that the chip established a persistent backdoor into the system on which it was mounted. If this is what happened, it would be a seeding attack, with malicious hardware placed upstream in the supply chain, where it would eventually find its way into targeted systems. The other class of hardware attack that's sometimes discussed is an interdiction attack, 
in which finished devices are altered while they're in transit between manufacturer and end-user. Some 30 companies in various sectors are thought to have been affected, and super-micro hardware is used in a wide variety of systems, including some used by the U.S. military. Apple and Amazon Web Services are both said to have been affected, and both strongly denied to Bloomberg that the incident ever occurred. Amazon said, quote, It's untrue that AWS knew about a supply chain compromise, an issue with malicious chips, or hardware modifications when acquiring Elemental, end quote. Amazon also told news outlets in France that, quote, At no time, past or present, have we ever found any issues relating to modified hardware or malicious chips in supermicro motherboards in any Elemental or Amazon systems, end quote. Apple wrote, quote, On this we can be very clear. Apple has never found malicious chips, hardware manipulations, or vulnerabilities purposely planted in any server. Quote. Supermicro said, quote, We remain unaware of any such investigation. End quote. For its part, the Chinese government deflected direct questions about what did or did not find its way into Supermicro hardware, issuing a pious statement about logistics that said in part, quote, Supply chain safety in cyberspace is an issue of common concern, and China is also a victim. End quote. No comment from the FBI or the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, but Bloomberg is standing by its story. Its notes on sources are interesting and worth quoting. Quote, Six current and former senior national security officials who, in conversations that began during the Obama administration and continued under the Trump administration, detailed the discovery of the chips and the government's investigation. One of those officials and two people inside AWS provided extensive information on how the attack played out at Elemental and Amazon. The official and one of the insiders also described Amazon's cooperation with the government investigation. In addition to the three Apple insiders, four of the six U.S. officials confirmed that Apple was a victim. In all, 17 people confirmed the manipulation of Supermicro's hardware and other elements of the attacks. The sources were granted anonymity because of the sensitive and, in some cases, classified nature of the information. End quote. Concerns about supply chain hacking with malicious hardware have worried U.S. government policy advisors for more than 10 years, with studies from Sandia National Laboratories and elsewhere pointing out the potential threat. That threat may have been realized. President Trump and his administration have made no secret of their concerns about Chinese hardware in the supply chain and have made that hardware a focus of trade sanctions, with the confident hope that manufacturers will move to other suppliers. Switching gears a bit to more routine protection of data, it's widely understood that it's important to have plans in place for the possibility or eventuality of a serious data breach. We spoke with Osama El-Hilali from ArcServe, who offers his thoughts on proper continuity and disaster recovery preparation. Well, quite often what we see is that uh, organizations will either not uh, protect all of their data or may come into an approach where they're, they think the data is protected. Quite often the situation is that they have a third party, you know, or they're putting the data in the cloud and they're assuming that because the data is in the cloud, it's somehow backed up and protected and there's multiple copies of it. And quite often it's um, the inability to distinguish between what is critical and what is not so critical. Uh, obviously if you have files that are relating to contracts or things that um, the frequency of accessibility 
is is long, you know, it gets pulled once every seven years or once every two years, is not like a, an application that has your email and your communication systems uh, on them. So that qualification sometimes creates a, a problem for those uh, organizations. What about uh, the notion of people rehearsing their plans? Is that something where uh, people don't often take it to the degree that they need to? Yeah, that's a very, very good question, actually. Quite often, you know, people are backing up based on a, a policy uh, that they have established. And, and uh, the person who established the policy may have had, you know, a notion of how they want to recover the data, but they may leave and the policy continues to execute on a regular basis. And then when a disaster happens or a need to recover some data happens, those uh, assumptions that were made are no longer there. So it is very, very important to kind of do the testing, multiple types of testing. Uh, for example, if I need a file or I need a, a an email, you know, a granular restore of a mailbox or a certain email, what is the process that I follow? And quite often we find that in that uh, the, the more sophisticated users not only have a plan that they rehearse on a regular basis, but that plan is detailed to the point where it says, you know, here's the, the names, here's the passwords, here's how you access these systems, here's the, how these systems uh, are protected, so that under most uh, foreseeable circumstances, not only the task can be accomplished and the data can be restored, uh, but also if something uh, unexpected happens, that can be remedied immediately, and uh, the process continues. Now, you all recently uh, conducted a survey. You, uh, you surveyed over 600 of your channel partners and, and other IT decision makers, and you, uh, you gathered some interesting data here. What can you share with us? Yeah, so the survey indicated that a half of, our, uh, of the uh, people who were surveyed do not have a disaster plan in place. And those who do have a disaster plan in place, uh, they don't regularly test it. I think it's the nature of, uh, you know, human beings. We become very, very complacent. And the nature of data protection is such that uh, if I haven't experienced it, I cannot imagine, you know, the impact of it. But when you look at the numbers and you look at the potential loss of a business, especially in situations where you have a retail organization that has an application that accepts orders, directly online from their customers, if that's down, that every second of downtime translates immediately on lost revenue. Those are the type of situations where uh, a disaster recovery plan has to uh, exist, and quite frequent testing of that disaster recovery plan uh, need to happen. And the organization needs to know that, uh, needs to estimate the amount of loss that, uh, you know, per second, per minute, per hour, per day, etc. That's Osama El-Halali from ArcServe. The other major nation-state threat in the news today is Russia's GRU, coming in for naming, shaming, expulsion, and indictment in three Western countries. The GRU is also known as Fancy Bear and GU, although no one really calls them GU apart from Russian diplomats, indulging some org chart misdirection during tendentious press conferences. The Netherlands has kicked out four GRU personnel after linking them to an attempted cyber attack on the Organization for the Prohibition for Chemical Weapons, that's the OPCW. They're the international agency investigating the Novichok attacks in Salisbury, England. 
Australia and the UK accused the GRU in some detail of cyber attacks against the World Anti-Doping Agency, the WADA, the U.S. Democratic Party, and others. Canada, which hosts the World Anti-Doping Agency in Montreal, joined in the condemnation, saying officially that it assessed with high confidence that the GRU was responsible for hacking WADA. It's worth noting that the attempts on WADA and OPCW appear to have been intended attacks on data integrity, altering rather than stealing or destroying information. And the U.S. Department of Justice today indicted seven GRU officers on charges related to the hacking of WADA and other organizations around the world. The indicted officers were all charged with conspiracy to access computers without authorization, wire fraud, and money laundering for buying computer equipment with cryptocurrencies. Five were charged with aggregated identity theft. One was charged with wire fraud specifically for engaging in spear phishing. But who knows? Maybe they're just a bunch of sports nutrition enthusiasts. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Craig Williams. He's the director of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, welcome back. Um, we wanted to touch today on conferences, on trade shows, and uh, how to head into them. If it's something new to you, how to get the most out of it. What can you share with us? Well, I think security conferences are one of the best ways to get experience in this industry and definitely one of the best ways to learn from your peers. You know, I think a lot of people go into conferences nervous and they're concerned about you know, how will people accept me? Will I be able to like connect with people that are on my skill level? You know, am I going to be overwhelmed? And I think what it really comes down to is you've got to think about why people are there, right? How did most people get into security? It's curiosity, right? Everyone's at these conferences because they're curious. They want to learn. They want to meet new people. They want to find people who have better ideas. 
They want to incorporate those better ideas. They want to share their good ideas. And so I think when it comes down to security conferences, really the first thing is just going in there and being willing to accept conversation from other people, right? Go in like you would going into a party, you know, go in there and say hi to people, say hi to people who you don't know, say hi to people you do know, and just start talking to them about what you're working on, what you can share, what are they working on? And obviously if it's, you know, one like DEF CON or a black hat, you should already go in knowing what talks you have to go to, right? I think, I think that's one of the mistakes people make sometimes is they wait until they actually get at the conference and then they pull out the agenda and try to figure out what they want to get into. But unfortunately, if it's a conference where you have to sign up in advance, you're going to end up missing a lot of the best talks. Hmm. So it's always important. Look at the agenda before you get there. When you walk in the door, make sure you start meeting the people you want to meet because a lot of times it's your opportunity to meet, you know, like say your hero, like somebody who wrote a security tool that you use every day and you want to talk to them about it and ask them why they design certain features certain ways. And so I think it's one of those situations where you've really got to be appreciative of the time you're going to have. Because let's be honest, we've all been at security conferences and we've all overdone it. (laughs) So (laughs) you've got to make sure on the first day you hit what you want to hit because on the second day you might sleep in an extra hour or two. Hey, maybe. I've been known to do that myself. Uh, You know, I think you make an interesting point about uh, introducing yourself to people and striking up conversations. It's certainly been my experience that uh, most people are eager to talk about their work. You're really going to run into someone who uh, either considers themselves, uh, you know, too too important to uh, to answer questions or to receive compliments from someone who admires what they do? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people are nervous to approach someone that they've followed their work before. But in my experience, I've never had a negative reaction, and I've been doing this for 15 years, just going to people who've been in this industry for 20 or 30 years and saying, "Hi, I'm Blah. I love your work on Blah. Tell me about it." Right? And right. It's always well received. And so I think, you know, in most cases, and I'm sure there are times when it's not going to work out that well, but in most cases, I think if you put yourself out there and go in with a good attitude, you're going to have a really good time and learn a lot. I wonder too, because I think sometimes I wonder if there's a mismatch, because if you, if you follow a lot of security folks in places like Twitter, uh, there can be no shortage of snark. Uh, there can be <laughs> no shortage of people kind of uh, flexing their muscles and and demonstrating just exactly how smart they are. But I think like so many uh, internet things, you know, people when they're face-to-face, uh, it might be a little bit different than when they're hiding or, or they're safe behind the comfort of that keyboard. Yeah, and, you know, I don't even like to think of it like that. I think I like to think of it in terms of they forget it's a person on the other end of the line, hmm. right? At Cisco, one of the things that we're really big on is video conferencing. And I've got to tell you, the difference between talking to someone over video and talking to someone on the phone is 100% sometimes. Hmm. You know, th- there are some people that are too busy. They're not thinking about it. They're just shooting a reply across the internet, and it may come across as incredibly snarky and offensive. But then you call them, and you walk them through your thought process, and they're 180. Hmm. They understand where you're coming from. They try to explain their position, and then everyone goes away a little bit smarter. And so I think you're right. It can definitely come across that way. But I think face-to-face is a much better way to ensure that doesn't happen and to make sure that, you know, you just communicate everything. I mean, let's be honest, some people, you know, one or two in our industry, they might have a little bit of an issue communicating certain things. (laughs) I I think you put them face to face, you really start reducing that and you can really start, you know, having people make friends and get along. Yeah, no, it's good advice. Craig Williams, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Banta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.